A young 18-year-old woman dead. I was told to put my hands up that I was under arrest. And he said, do you believe me? Do you believe that I'm innocent? And I said, of course I do. In 1997, the Norfolk Four were four sailors at a naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, when they were falsely accused of rape and murder. Hogan Lovells began representing one of the four, Derek Tice, after he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, Hogan Lovells has taken on countless cases in the fight for criminal justice. Today, Derek is with us, along with one of his Hogan Lovells pro bono attorneys, now a U.S. magistrate judge, Debbie Boardman. Debbie, why don't I start with you? If you could give us some background on this case leading up to Derek's arrest. Certainly, Kate. Thank you for having me. And even just hearing that introduction has got me emotional. It was it was quite an experience representing Derek. Um, this is a case that started back in July of 1997. A young 18-year-old woman named Rochelle Moore Bosco was found by her newlywed husband, Billy Bosco. They had been Um, They went to high school together and they were just freshly married and he was stationed in Norfolk as a as a new Navy sailor. He returned from a month at sea and returned to their apartment, excited to see her. But instead, he found her dead, lifeless and murdered on their bedroom floor. It was clear she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed. The police, of course, were immediately called and they focused their attention on the neighbor a young man who was a Navy sailor named Daniel Williams who lived across the hall. He lived there with his new wife, um, Nicole, who was recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Police asked him to come in for questioning. He agreed um, and he agreed also to meet his wife and his parents who were in town visiting from Michigan um, for dinner later that night at the Cracker Barrel. That would never happen. And then Daniel would be later charged with first degree murder. But before the charges came, he was brought into the interrogation room. He was asked questions about it and he denied any involvement in the crime. In the middle of the night, the police were unable to extract a confession from him. They brought in another detective, uh, a well-known seasoned detective in Norfolk named Detective Glenn Ford. Within an hour of the interrogation, Daniel broke and he confessed to committing the crime but he said he hit Michelle with a shoe. A couple hours later, the medical examiner comes back and reports that in fact, she had been murdered with a a, a knife several times in the chest, repeatedly stabbed. Detective Ford got Daniel to change his story to say that he killed her with a knife and he did it alone. Then Daniel was charged. The case was essentially solved. The police believed only one person did it. All indications in the crime scene that were one person did this. There was no evidence of of anyone else in there of of defensive marks on Michelle, such as scratches or bruises on her body. The apartment was intact. It didn't indicate that there was a struggle with a number of people. A number of months went by. Daniel was still incarcerated, and the DNA results came back. 
because there was plenty of DNA left behind on the scene and the DNA did not match. It did not match Daniel's DNA. And at that point, one would think the police might revisit what they did, reconsider, do we have the right person? Um, is Daniel really the one? There's no DNA match. Instead, they doubled down. They stood by the confession they'd obtained and they decided that a second person must have been involved. So they went on a search for a DNA match. That led to the interrogation of Daniel's roommate at the time, another Navy sailor named Joseph Dick. He was brought in by Detective Ford. He was no match for Detective Ford. Joe was very suggestible and has significant limitations. Joe then, after hours of pressure and threats, said that he committed the crime with Daniel. Again, his DNA was tested, no match. Again, at that point, the police did not revisit their theory, did not reassess the situation. They continued to search for the DNA match by implicating and looking for friends or people who knew Daniel and Joe. And eventually Eric Wilson was brought in, falsely confessed. His DNA wasn't a match. Derek Tice was then brought in as the fourth individual. He falsely confessed under the pressure of Detective Ford. His DNA too wasn't a match and it continued. It was only until about 18 months after the crime occurred that the police finally found a DNA match. And it wasn't through their investigation and it, it wasn't through good police work. It was because the real killer, someone who knew Michelle, someone who had access to the home, wrote a letter to friends. He was serving a 40 year sentence for raping a young woman two weeks after he killed Michelle and for assaulting a woman 10 days before he killed Michelle. He wrote a letter to friends in which he confessed to committing the crime, confessed to killing Michelle on his own. Police then went and spoke with Omar Ballard. Omar Ballard admitted to committing the crime alone. His DNA came back a complete match to all of the DNA found at the crime scene. And at that point, you would think that the police, the prosecutors might reassess the situation and might say, wait, we've got seven men at this point, four of whom have confessed to this crime. Maybe we did something wrong, but no. They then incorporated Omar Ballard into their evolving theory of the case. It has now evolved into a gang rape of this young woman, even though none of the physical evidence, none of the scientific evidence led anyone to believe that more than one person did this. And the only person connected to the crime by any physical or scientific evidence was Omar Ballard, who said he did it alone. That is an astonishing derailment of, of justice, um, just hearing that story recited in the, in the way that you just did, Debbie. Um, Derek, let me, let me ask you a question. You know, when, when, the, when the police first reached out to you, what, what happened when the police first made contact with you? I got home from work, got a message that a Norfolk uh, police detective wanted to talk to me got his voicemail, left him a message. And then around nine o'clock that evening, he called me back. He identified himself as uh, Detective Brian Ray uh, with the Norfolk Police Department, um, asked me what I knew about the uh, case against Daniel Williams because they were going forward, getting ready for trial and just wanted more information. I told him I really didn't know a whole lot about the case. He goes, okay, thank you. Uh, my partner may have some questions for you. Uh, are you going to be home for the rest of the evening? And I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, I got to go to work tomorrow. I'm 
you know, I'm here for the night. He goes, okay, if he has any questions, he should be back within two hours. So if you don't hear from us, you know, it's all good. And we hung up. I looked at the clock because it was a two hour, you know, window. It was around nine or yeah, about nine, 12 that, that evening. Um, I sat around with my girlfriend watching TV. Uh, 11, 15 came. I said, well, I guess they have no questions and proceeded to get ready for bed, you know, take a shower, get ready for work the next day. Uh, get out of the shower. Um, and the phone rings. Uh, my girlfriend's daughter answers it. And she informs me that uh, it's a police officer and he wanted to talk to me. So I was like, OK, well, he's a little bit late, but, you know, no big deal. So, you know, I go answer the phone and he tells me that he is a uh, sheriff's deputy with uh, Orange County Sheriff's Department and asked me to step out onto the porch. I told him, I said, well, I just got out of the shower. Uh, would it be possible for me to get on a pair of shorts? You know, and I'll be right out. He goes, sure. Uh, I stepped out on my porch there in Orlando and was affronted by over 12 police officers in bulletproof vests with uh, nine millimeters and 12 gauge shotguns all pointed at me. I was told to uh, put my hands up that I was under arrest, put my hands up. Uh, he advanced, put handcuffs on me. They proceed to put me in a police car. And at that time, they tell me that I was under arrest for the, uh, the charge of uh, capital murder and rape. They asked me to verify my social security number. It took me I know over about three minutes to give them my nine digit social security number. Uh, but being in the military for eight years, I can rattle it off faster than my name. And that's how much of a shock it was for me um, to have those charges uh, against me. I, I can't I can't even imagine, Derek, um, you know, how how shocked and how rattled you must have been in that moment. When you, you you were in uh, the jail in Florida for a while, and then I think the detectives from Virginia, I assume they moved you up to Norfolk at some point. What were they telling you about the evidence that they said they had against you? I mean, how, how was the state even able to charge you here? Well, when they came down, it was actually exactly one week after uh, my arrest. So it was the following Thursday. They came down about 530 in the morning. Uh, to the jail. They got all my personal effects, which was basically just my ID, put me in a car, took me to the airport. There was really no conversation as to what kind of evidence or anything until after we got up into Norfolk. Detective Ford did show me a file folder. It was a vertical file folder like you carry around. It was quite thick. And he told me that this was the case. And for the past year, it had been his life. And then once we got into Norfolk after a layover in Charlotte, by my recollection, it was about 1.15 when we got to Norfolk. Once we got into uh, the interrogation room, uh, they left me alone for a few minutes while I guess they got their, you know, ducks in a row or whatever. I know that the door was locked because I did hear the bolt slide. Then I got the small glimpse of hell for 16 hours. The only evidence that they ever really said that they had was that there was uh, 
DNA left at the scene and that there was an eyewitness that nobody knew about that put me at the scene. That was really all that they had. But with Ford in his interrogation tactics, after 16 hours of no sleep, yeah. uh, only having a pack of nabs and two sodas, I finally broke and confessed. I think this is this is something that a, a lot of people who aren't, you know, familiar with the criminal justice system, who haven't either encountered it or had someone who've gone through it, you know, some sometimes people think, well, if somebody confesses, you know, that that automatically means they did it. But it's it's so much more twisted and complicated than that, right? When when someone like Ford pushes someone to the brink as he did with you. Um, for those 16 hours with hardly anything to eat, hardly anything to drink. So what what was it, do you think, that made you confess? Just that, that accumulation of those hours in hell? Well, throughout the interrogation, they were in and out of the room at different intervals, never really giving me a chance to relax or, you know, collect my thoughts. At one point, I know I remember Ford and I arguing about uh, taking a polygraph and me passing it and failing it. And they did eventually have me take a polygraph. I went in with the uh, polygrapher, which was in a separate room. The way they did the polygraph was they had a set of questions, and I think it was about 10 questions. He asked me those questions, got down my answers, uh, hooked me up to the polygraph machine and said, okay, these are the questions I'm going to ask. This is the order I'm going to ask them in. You know, just answer them the way you did before. So I answered the 10 questions. He resets the machine, gives me about a minute or two to kind of relax a little bit, ask the same 10 questions, same order. Uh, and he does this three times. After that, um, he looked at the printout of the results of the polygraph. And just from eyeballing it said that I failed. Uh, he knew he used no instruments or anything like that. It was just a judgment call, I guess, on his part. Mm -hmm. And he said that I failed miserably and that if I kept lying, I was going to die and that he would retire before my sentence was carried out, but he would come back just to watch me die. Oh, good God. I told him at that time that I wanted to talk to a lawyer. I was taken back to the interrogation room and it was a matter of minutes uh, before Detective Ford came back in and started right back in on the questioning. Uh, he did have a picture of uh, Miss Bosco. She had a, I remember it, it was kind of like a side picture of her where she was, her body was sideways and she was turned looking over I think it was her left shoulder with the leather jacket over her right. And throughout the those 16 hours of interrogation, he was, you know, what y'all did to this girl was was terrible. You know, it sickens me what y'all did to her. You know, how can you live with what you did to her? And every yeah. time he said her, he would kind of like emphasize that picture. Hold up that picture. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I got back into the interrogation room after taking the polygraph, he came in with, you know, the same questions and I kept denying, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Uh, he did have the smug look on his face and he said, well, you failed like I knew you would and you failed miserably. You're going to die if you keep this up. And then towards the end there, 
uh, after the 16 hours, he was like, how would you feel if this was your wife, your sister, your daughter? And when he said daughter, at that time I had, let's see, that was 97. So she was almost four years old, uh, my daughter was. And just even thinking about something like that happening to her, I, I mean, I just broke down and started to cry. Yeah. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, just get it out. You know, just tell the truth. You know, you'll feel a whole lot better. And I just finally looked up and said, okay, fine. I did it. And the reason I did was because at that time, I didn't see any other way out of that room other than giving Ford what he wanted. And that was a confession. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point, 16 hours in, he's threatening you with the death penalty. And you're thinking, this is, this is my avenue out. This is, this is what yeah. I need to tell him to get out of this room. Yeah. Exactly. That was the only way out of that room. Yeah. So Debbie, let me bring you back into this conversation too. How, how did you, how did you learn about Derek and how did you get involved in his case? In the fall of 2004, um, a lawyer named George Kendall contacted the firm. George was a nationally known death penalty lawyer, civil rights lawyer, um, and he still is a giant in the field. He contacted Des Hogan, who was a young partner at the time, who now, of course, is um, one of the leaders of the firm. He and Des had worked on the Tulia matter, which involved um, a, a rogue lawless cop in, in Texas. So they had worked on that matter together. George called Des and said, Des, I've got a huge case for you and I need your help. Um, the Innocence Project reached out to George, Peter Newfeld, and Barry Shack and said, there's this um, case in Virginia that's too big for us to handle. And it involves four innocent young Navy sailors, all of whom are serving life sentences in uh, a Virginia maximum security facility right now. We can't handle it, can you? So George contacted Des, knowing Des's commitment to justice, knowing the firm's commitment to really hard cases. Um, Des agreed, of course, and Des assembled a team of lawyers and I was lucky enough to be um, a member of that team so we represented Derek Tice. Um, George Kendall and his law firm represented Joseph Dick. Um, Don Salzman and his firm at Skadden Arps represented Daniel Williams. And the fourth of the Norfolk Four was Eric Wilson. At the time, Eric had only been convicted of rape and was about to be released and was represented by a separate lawyer. So this was a team of three law firms representing three of the Norfolk Four, all of whom were serving life sentences. And it was at that point that we operated as a team, the three law firms did and the various lawyers. Um, the, the approach was two-pronged. Um, for Derek, he was the only one who had any um, relief in the courts left. He, his time for the appellate process had not yet expired for Daniel and for Joseph Dick. They had pled guilty years earlier, and the period for their appellate file filings was over. They were out of luck. So the two-prong approach was to challenge Derek's conviction in the courts with a habeas petition in Norfolk City Circuit Court, and then also to launch a clemency petition to then-Governor Mark Warner. And that whole process lasted we started representing Derek in the fall of 2004. 
he was released from a Virginia State prison um, 11 years ago today, actually. Um, wow. Indeed. And I was fortunate enough to be there to witness it, to watch him and Daniel Williams walk out of Sussex to State Prison in Virginia um, 11 years ago today. So the effort then continued after that, um, and the firm was able to get Derek's record expunged, and um, eventually Derek was completely exonerated by Governor Terry McAuliffe, but it, it took three tries with three separate governors of Virginia. I guess one question that I have is if, if anything happened to Ford, because the, the, the unifying evil theme of this story seems to be that man. So what, what, what if anything, was the consequence for, for him? So Detective Ford, at the time of the investigation into Michelle Morbosco's death, was a seasoned homicide detective. He'd actually had a history of obtaining false confessions. A few years earlier, it was alleged that he obtained false confessions from um, other young men. After this happened, and after the innocence of the Norfolk Four was brought to light, there were actually no consequences for him as a police officer. However, Detective Ford was investigated on separate charges of bribery and corruption while he was a police officer. He went to trial in federal court. Um, he was charged with receiving bribes from criminal defendants and lying to prosecutors, saying that they had actually provided cooperation and information in other cases when they had not. So Detective Ford was never brought to justice in the Norfolk Four case, but he is currently serving a federal prison sentence on corruption and bribery charges. And I just want to put a pin in something that, that Derek mentioned earlier, because I think it's so it's so important to this story, which is that Detective Ford, despite Derek, uh, you're invoking your right to an attorney, your right to remain silent, that he kept going at you. Um, and, you know, that that is, if I remember correctly, one of the fundamental bases for the overturning of the conviction, ultimately, um, before the before the exoneration and the pardons. The legal winding that we went through in the courts from the lowest state court in Virginia to the United States uh, Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit was pretty extraordinary. We filed a state habeas petition in Norfolk in September of 2005. We had a two-day hearing before a circuit court judge in Norfolk the following September. That judge granted our habeas petition. And basically, Judge Martin found that Derek's lawyers even though they were good to criminal defense lawyers in Norfolk, they had made a serious mistake. They had failed to move to suppress his confession based on a violation of Derek's Miranda rights because the judge found, in fact, that he had invoked his right to remain silent and that the police officers ignored that and continued the questioning. And the judge found that his lawyers should have moved to suppress a statement, that it would have been successful, that it would not have been introduced at trial, and that all the remaining evidence that the government had against him um, would crumble at that point. So we won at the state level. It was appealed to the Virginia Supreme Court. They reversed. We were crestfallen, but undeterred. We then filed a federal habeas petition in Norfolk um, and Judge Williams granted our petition and found in our favor. The government then appealed to the Fourth Circuit and the appellate court also found in our favor and found indeed that Derek's constitutional right 
rights had been violated, that his confession should have never been admitted into court, and that um, there was really no other evidence to convict him. Derek, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a couple hard questions, but then we'll return to one to easier ground. How how long were you in prison, and what what told what told do you think that that took on you? The first one's easy to answer. Yeah, it was eleven years, one month, eighteen days, twenty one hours, and thirty six minutes. Uh, <laughs> The rest of it, it's harder to explain what's going on. Um, My life has really been turned upside down because of this. Um, Before I was locked up, before any of this really happened, um, I mean, I was raised to boot. To believe that the police were there to protect us, to help us. Um, they were a th- an authority figure. They were, you know, they were right. Um, after this happened, um, of course, that fundamental belief was totally shattered. Um, I honestly still don't trust the police. When I go into restaurants, I have to sit with my back to the wall, uh, be able to see the uh, main entrance. And if I can't sit with my back directly against the wall, it has to be to where no one can really walk behind me Mm -hmm. um, and come up behind me unknowingly. I used to be very trusting, very friendly. Uh, Since I've gotten out, I can count my new friends on one hand. Um, I mean, I don't really trust anyone. Uh, anytime I walk down the street, walk in the mall, wherever, anytime I see somebody that I don't know, there's a line of thoughts that run through my head. Uh, do they recognize the, do they recognize me? Do they know who I am? Do they Mm. know about my case? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Do they believe what the police said? Do they believe the facts? You know, and then it goes down the rabbit hole of if they believe what the police said and that line of BS, you know, what kind of actions would they take against me? Yes. And that's every single person. It doesn't matter if they're six years old or 60 years old. Yeah. So my life is basically living on eggshells. I really don't know when things are ever going to get back to normal if they do. I mean, talking about this, even all these years later, my chest is, it feels like a 300 pound man is sitting on my chest. Uh, It's hard to breathe. I know my pulse is racing. I almost breaking out in a sweat. I'm close to tears. I mean, I want to walk away, but I, I don't want to, I need to, we need to have this out and so people can understand that innocent people can say the most horrific things and it's all because of self-preservation. 
Um, I mean, that interrogation room was literally a closet. Uh, it was probably about five feet wide, seven feet deep, one door, dimly lit, uh, smelled like a ashtray that hadn't been cleaned out in over three years. Um, you could smell that there was uh, urine in the room. Uh, there was a single door and any and every time that the police were in that room, they were between me and that door. So to save my life, to get out of that room, I had to give them what they wanted. Yeah, because you were you were trapped. You were literally trapped in that in that yes. room, and they had they had systematically denied your humanity essentially for sixteen hours, and and you're still trying to you're still trying to get that back. And I yeah. I hear you. Yeah. So Debbie, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. You mentioned um, the day that that Derek walked out of prison, and Derek, this was the the slightly happier ground that I was hoping we could return to. The day you you walked out of prison, um, and Debbie, you were there. Debbie, why don't you start with with what you experienced, and then Derek, I'll I'll come back to you and ask the same question if that's okay. Oh boy, it was a 24 hour period. I will never forget um, the team gathered down in Richmond because we were told that Governor Tim Kaine was going to make an announcement on our petition for clemency. And we learned that Governor Kaine would grant a conditional pardon, essentially give us a half loaf. He would continue to maintain that the Norfolk Four were guilty, but release them because basically they were good guys and they weren't as bad as Omar Ballard. And so Derek accepted the conditional pardon because that meant he would be released and go home into the loving arms of his family. So the next day, a team of lawyers from Hogan and the other law firms, um, myself, Des Hogan, Melissa Henke and others, went to the maximum security prison where Derek Tice and Daniel Williams were spending their days and we watched them walk out of prison with their parents. Um, their moms and dads were there and the guards cheered as they walked out of prison and clapped. Um, and just seeing them walk through those, the fence, the barbed wire fence, I'll never forget that, into the parking lot, into a car. They hadn't ridden a car on their own free will in over a decade, it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I was just so proud to be there with you, Derek and to spend that day with you. And then that evening, it was just celebration. We went to dinner in Richmond. Um, we had some cocktails. We had a very nice meal. It was just a lot of laughs and hugs and smiles. It was very joyful. Derek, anything, anything that really stands out in your memory from that day? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had been told, actually, I think the lawyers had contacted the jail and wanted to have us call them. So I called about, it's probably about nine o'clock in the morning and talked with uh, Des Hogan. Uh, he told me about the uh, governor making a, a statement later on that afternoon, probably around 1230, that they would get uh, a heads up as to what was being said 
and to call back if I could around 12. And I told him, of course, no problem. I told the guards that I needed to make a 12 o'clock legal call, uh, which normally was granted unless we were on total lockdown, which we weren't at the time. And we were putting ourselves for lunch. Um, Lunch was over with. We should have been brought out to the pod so we could have uh, our daily recreational time. But the doors weren't opened yet. And we do have an, they had an intercom button uh, in the sales for us to get in touch with the guards in the booth. Kept telling them that I had a legal phone call that I needed to make. I needed to make it at 12. It's already 1210. You know, I need to make this phone call. And it was probably about maybe 1245. They finally opened up my door and I was thought I was going to be making a phone call. But I was told that the sergeant wanted to see me down in the lieutenant's office. And I was like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble again. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only time you're ever called to, the, to go see the sergeant in the right, lieutenant's right. office. You're in trouble. So I'm like, oh, great. Trying to run through my head of what I did wrong. Couldn't come up with anything. I walk down a flight of stairs to the sergeant's office. The door opens up. And Daniel Williams is standing in there um off to the right and before the sergeant has time to say anything uh dan his exact words were just accept it and (laughs) i didn't know what to think of that uh obviously my first thoughts were the governor's denied everything Mm -hmm. um and then the sergeant says, well, your lawyer has, you know, we have your lawyer on the phone. He wants to talk to you. I'm like, all right. So I picked up the phone and Des asked one of the dumbest questions in the history of the world. <laughs> Do you want to go home today? <laughs> I'm telling Des this, by the way. <laughs> he already knows. I told him. <laughs> Um, and of course I was like, yes. Um, and he goes, well, here's the condition. It's, you know, here's the situation. It's going to be a conditional pardon. Uh, you're still going to have to register as a sex offender. You're going to have to, uh, be on parole, uh, you know, meet with the parole officer, all that kind of stuff. But, um, we're working on getting you out of there today. Uh, I was like, okay you know the sooner the better and that was the end of the phone call with des but then things took a little bit of a turn because both dan and i were going to be being released the sergeant couldn't put us back in the pod uh for fear of retribution Mm -hmm. of us getting out the other guys not yeah and we were like well what about our stuff they said well we'll go get your stuff and have it brought to you and it's like, well, we're in the same pod. Could we be put in one cell and it'd be locked, you know? And that's when the sergeant realized that we were, you know, literally about five cells apart from each other. He goes, yeah, that can be done. So the officers took us back up to the pod. Dan went and got all his stuff out of his cell. My celly got all of his stuff and Dan and my celly switched places at about... It's about 515, 530. Uh, the lieutenant and the sergeant came to our door and said, okay, you ready to go? 
when we went down, uh, turned in all of our uh, prison issued stuff, our sheets, our blankets, pillowcases, mattress, pillows, and everything. They went through our inventory, uh, inventoried all of our personal stuff to make sure that we weren't taking anything that wasn't ours. I would say it was probably about six o'clock, 6.15. Uh, we were taken into the actual contact uh, visitation area where our families could visit. Uh, they had two uh, long tables uh, put end to end uh, with chairs all around it. Uh, Dan was told to sit at one end. I was told to sit at the other. Um, we were there maybe a minute. Uh, and then the most beautiful thing happened. Uh, at a door to the outside world opened up. Uh, we could actually see sunlight and the lawyers filed in. Um, uh, De or, uh, Don Salzman, Erica, and I think one other lawyer for Dan uh, sat down at the end of the table with him. Mm -hmm. Des, uh, Debbie, and Melissa came in for me. And we sat down and we went through all the paperwork that we had to go through as far as uh, getting released, uh, the conditions of the clemency, uh, the interstate uh, compact for uh, parole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I signed uh, my name 11 times to different pieces of paper. And at one point, I remember uh, Dan came up to me and he goes, what's up? And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, you know that was the only question he asked and that was all he said. And being the jokester that I was, um, <laughs> I immediately said a chicken's ass when it eats. <laughs> and of Which course, is true. all the lawyers, laughed. <laughs> of course it's true. Um, but the lawyers all laughed and he goes, okay, that takes care of that and went back and sat down. And that's when I found out that there was going to be news people out in when we got released out in the parking lot. And I think he was asking whether I wanted to talk to him or not. <laughs> <laughs> and it was decided we weren't talking to the, <laughs> to the media. So after that, the lawyers left back out, out the door. I was given uh, a tan pair of pants and a button down shirt. Uh, from the prison, so I could walk out with that and not in the uh, mm -hmm. hospital or the nursing scrubs. After we got changed, the sergeant was that was in there uh, congratulated us on getting out, and our parents were finally allowed in. And of course, you know, both moms are close to tears, and the first first thing both of them do is hug hug their sons. Uh, the dads pat us on the back. And of course, you know, we all exchange hugs. Uh, about maybe three minutes after that, uh, we were escorted out of that, that building. And like Debbie said, the gates in the uh, barbed wire fence were opened up and we were finally allowed to walk out at 7 p.m. <laughs>
what an extraordinary kind of series of, of minutes and hours in that day. That's amazing. So Derek, one of the one of the things you were talking about earlier is just sort of how how your sense of physical space has been affected, how your sense of trust has been affected. But I'm wondering, it, are there any things that you do kind of in the in the course of your life or in the day where you feel where you feel freer, where you feel good? Um, you know, I see I see a, what I think is a motorcycle helmet behind you. Do you ride a do yes. you ride a motorbike? You know, yes, are there? I actually, yeah, are, are I actually the, just got it uh, February. Really? Uh, for my fiftieth birthday. I'm wondering, like, when you're when you're on the bike, or when you're when you're in a different moment, are there moments where you feel more at ease and more more free and more yourself? I do feel a little bit of freedom, you know, in the bike um, or on the bike. I should say, not in the bike, uh, only because I have the helmet on. There's no other people around. Mm -hmm. I'm not, not seeing anybody. All I have is the sound of the motorcycle and myself. Uh, I do feel a little bit free then. Uh, but typically, I don't feel at ease. Even here at home, I'm constantly on guard. Well, I'm, I'm glad you got that bike because I think... I think those moments when you've when you've got the helmet on and you're by yourself and it's just that just that noise you, you know that if you can get a little peace there that's that's a good place to be. I will say there was one instance where I actually have felt more myself. It was actually when Debbie was sworn in as a federal judge. Um, friends of hers that she had been friends with since high school and going through law school and everything, uh, they were there as well. Um, and come to find out that they knew a lot about me before that day uh, through Debbie um, with living the case that like she had, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about it as much as she could without uh, disclosing too much. Uh, they learned a lot about me. Um, they were eager to meet me, which was surprising on my on my part. Um, anybody really wanting to meet me? Uh, but after she was sworn in, we went back to the hotel and was in the lounge there. And that's the one time that I actually felt more myself. Uh, because I didn't have to worry about, you know, what do they know? What do they think? I already knew that they were in my corner. They trusted exactly. and believed the truth. Exactly. They so, knew you and they knew what the truth was and they supported you and they, and you trusted them. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, for those couple of hours that I was with them was a safety cocoon, I guess. Yeah best way to put it yeah is, yeah you know i was surrounded by friends you were surrounded yep yep yeah. it's yeah. friends that i never knew that i had but <laughs> it makes it you makes know, a through huge Debbie, difference i had yeah. i had a safety a safety zone and um i wasn't even staying in that hotel i actually was at another hotel about about a mile and a half away of but I never wanted to leave. Um, 
because I was, yeah. I was safe. Yeah. I think Derek outlasted me at my own party. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want it at the end. I tell you, I didn't. Maybe one way to think about it is that, you know, that safety cocoon still exists. It's not right there with you, but all those people still exist in the world and they know you and they know the yes. truth, you know. So it's it's still out there. It's just a much wider safety net, you know, in a way. It is. I remember one time getting a call from Derek, um, a collect call from the jail. And of course I took it and answered it. And his voice was very hesitant, very reticent. And I thought, oh boy, what, what's on his mind? What's he thinking? And he said, I just have to ask you one question. And I said, sure. And he said, do you believe me? Do you believe that I'm innocent? And I said, of course I do. But I could tell in his voice, that's all he wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, so Derek, you don't have to prove yourself anymore. <laughs> <laughs> not to anybody, not to, not to Debbie, not to me, not to anybody. Well, Derek, thank you so much. It has been, it has been truly a privilege um, to see you and to talk with you and to, and to hear you. And I'm so grateful um, that you took the time and that you, that you talked about a lot of things that are that are just profoundly difficult to talk about. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And Debbie, thank you. Thank you so much, as always. In 2018, thanks in part to the advocacy of Hogan Lovell's attorneys, the city of Norfolk and the Commonwealth of Virginia agreed to settlements compensating the Norfolk Four for the time they wrongfully spent behind bars. They received a combined $8.4 million in payments. Now, all of our pro bono cases feel absolutely critical and are potentially life-changing for our clients. But when we are representing someone sentenced to death, the stakes are as high as they get. In our next episode of the podcast, we examine the efforts of Hogan Lovell's attorneys advocating for inmates facing execution. We hope you'll join us.